Hey everyone, James Labrie from Dream Theater, and you're listening to or watching the podcast Talking Into Infinity with JT and Brian. Enjoy this. These guys are extremely informative. I love their dialogue. I love their interpretation of the songs, who and what we are, what we were going after. They're very uh, accurate in their uh, interpretations and descriptions and uh, just I just think this is a great show and these guys are doing a, a stand-up stellar job so once again enjoy Talking Into Infinity with JT and Brian What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater-centric podcast. I am your host, John. We are live on Facebook, YouTube, TalkingIntoInfinity.com, the CMS Rumble page, and the CMS Network. We are live at those locations every other Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you are tuned in on YouTube, don't forget to click that like button, click that subscribe button, and smash that notification bell so that you are notified every time we go live. If you are looking for video replays of the show, just go to our YouTube channel. If you are looking for audio replays of the show, just Google Talking Into Infinity Podcast, and we are on pretty much every Pla uh, podcast platform that you can possibly think of and a real quick show note before we get going here uh it is the holiday season coming up here pretty quickly and we do have our annual fan hangout coming on friday december 22nd at 7 30 p.m eastern standard time we've already got a number of guests lined up to come on with me and brian and help us go through that craziness so uh if you would like to be a part of the fan hangout and jump on camera with us just shoot us an email at talking into infinity at gmail.com and you can co-host the show with us for a while that night and uh, as always guys gorilla farts will be flowing aplenty so without further ado let me bring on my esteemed co-host mr brian hendrickson what's going on man how are you Dude, I'm very excited for this episode, and before we get into that, we do need to revisit that we did an emergency broadcast of, everyone knows on the planet now, I guess, Mike Portnoy is back, yep. uh, as we are a dream theater-centered podcast, and Mike Mangini is going on to pursue other things, and if you did not get a chance, please go check it out, because I think it's one of the cooler episodes we did, it was very spontaneous, and uh, I think a lot of a lot of good dialogue regarding the return of Mike Portnoy. But uh, anyway, about tonight's episode, man, I'm very excited about this. Uh, an, an incredible book um, Steve wrote here. And, uh, you know, when it comes to Van Halen, everybody wants some. They don't want to hear about it later. we got to get seriously right into it. This is going to be like, I mean, this, you have to be, I can't believe you're not like, you're going to be crying at some point during this episode, aren't you? You really are. I'm not even joking. Like, this is like. This is the Holy Grail, someone who's like literally was two feet from Eddie Van Halen for I don't know how many years of their life and with an arm's reach and a personal friend. And uh, yeah, just take it away and tell us what we're about to hear here. Well, I'm just going to I'm just going to say it. Uh, we have Stephen Rosen coming on the show here in just a second. Uh, he's a legendary guitar writer. He's written for Guitar World, Guitar Player, um, all, any guitar magazine you can think of. You've probably seen his writing. Uh, there are several famous pictures of him with Eddie. So you probably know him uh, by seeing him as well. Um, and you're right, Brian, for me, you know, I love Dream Theater. That's why we have a Dream Theater podcast it is Dream Theater centric, as we say. But my favorite band 
is Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen literally is my hero. And I have read every single Van Halen book there is to read. And then I got this one and it, it is, I'm not just saying this because Steve is coming out. It is the best Van Halen book I've ever read. And uh, we're going to, we're going to dig deep into this uh, with the author, Stephen Rosen here in a second. But yeah, Brian, this is absolutely, this, this pretty much is for me the Holy grail because it's having known almost everything there is to know about the Van Halen story through all the different things I've read and listened to and whatnot. This is an incredibly unique look into the band, but most importantly into Eddie himself. And it's something that never existed before. There is nothing like it on the market. There's nothing out there for Van Halen fans like me. Uh, So, you know, man, without further ado, let's bring him on. He is the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Steven Rosen. What's up, man? How you doing? Doing great, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I ever since you agreed to do this, I have been so looking forward to this interview. It's crazy. Oh man, that, that, that's very nice, guys. I really appreciate that. After that wonderful intro, I, uh, I hope I don't disappoint here. So, <laughs> I, I highly you. doubt that. So, um, real quick. So, before I get to my first question, I, w- I want to throw out a personal story to you because I actually had a very personal experience with uh, Eddie Van Halen. I know Edward is, you know. We're talking about your book, Tone Chaser, you know, my 26-year journey with Edward Van Halen. You were friends with him from 1978 to 2003, Um, and and you had such a personal, up-close look at him, and, you know, I've told the story on the show many times that I discovered music through Eddie Van Halen when I was eight years old, and, you know, I heard the 1984 record, and my little my little eight-year-old brain just exploded. And then a few months later, my dad hooked up cable. And the very first video that popped up on MTV when I looked up MTV was Panama. And I was like, oh, my God, that's what this guy looks like. Like the guitar, like his look. And then when the Hot for Teacher video hit, you know, what, a month, a month or two later, and I saw him walking down that table doing the solo, I was like, I want to be Eddie Van Halen. I, I want to be Eddie Van Halen. For my entire life, Steve, there have been two bastions of cool. It's Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon and Eddie Van Halen and the Frankenstein. So that's the one. But I did I did get to meet Eddie one time. And a, a lot of the book centers on your experiences being in the same room with him on a one-on-one basis as a friend. like, And just the way that he played and just how different he was. And I had the pleasure of meeting him on the 2004 tour. Obviously, we know he was a little bit, you know, messed up on that tour. But the show I saw, he was not. I I got the special package. I got into soundcheck and he played guitar for us privately for about 20 minutes. And I was literally from me to my computer screen right now to Eddie. And it was the first show he brought back the 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 striped Charvels. He walked out with a black and with a white with black striped Charvel and I about shit my pants. I was like, oh, my God, he hasn't played that in forever. Well, anyway, he gets done soloing and everything. And, you know, you know this. Eddie always said, I'm a musician. I'm not a rock star. He hated all the fame and the trappings and all that crap. Well, th- there was only 50 of us that got this package. And the people behind me are just going, Eddie, and doing that thing and holding up the sciences. God thinks he, all this other stuff. And I saw him waving and being cool, but I saw him rolling his eyes and stuff. And I was like, man, he really doesn't like this. And I have a, I have a very big family history of cancer. You, I mentioned that in email, you know, with you, Steve. And Eddie had beaten cancer, you know, the year before. And I just tugged on his jeans. I was like, you know what? I'm going to take my shot. And I was tugging on his jeans. Eddie, Eddie. And finally, he goes, what the fuck do you want? (laughs) And I said, hey, man, fuck music. You beat cancer. It's just nice to see you healthy and able to do what you do, man. Just congratulations. And he got down and he gave me a big hug. And he goes, thank you, man. That means a lot to me. And to me, that made Eddie a person. You know, he was this larger than life figure to me. And 
humanized him. It made him a person for me. And your book, I think, does that for Van Halen fans because we've all read all the stories. You know, we talked for a minute before we jumped on all the stories about, you know, the piano competitions and what happened with David Lee Roth and, you know, working with Don Landy at weird hours of the morning for fair warning, all that stuff. But we've never gotten to look into Eddie as a person, as himself, just like not Eddie, the guitar guy, just, you know, Edward Lodevike like Van Halen, the guy. And your book does that, which is absolutely amazing. So first and foremost, you know, tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book, because this is such a unique look into one of the greatest musicians of our time. Okay, where do I begin? Um, in order to tell you about this book, as I wrote in my intro, um, you need to know about the book that was supposed to happen back in 1985. So I had known Edward for about, um, uh, about seven or eight years at that point. And, you know, I, I, I could just sense his, the legend of him was growing. I mean, he was becoming just, just huge, you know, and people were talking about him and, and, and I, I sensed that, you know, writers are going to approach him and want to write a book about him. So I said, I'm going to ask him, you know, I want, I want to be able, I want to be the guy to write his book. So I approached him and finally found the, the chutzpah to ask him. And he said, yes, Yes, you know, you can write that book. You know, I, I can't think of any other writer who could do that. And that kind of blew me away. So for several years, probably mm, at least three years, maybe more actually on and off, um, I started gathering interviews, um, you know, and I, I interviewed um, friends from Pasadena and guys who were promoting uh, the shows uh, uh, that Van Halen was doing back in Pasadena. Uh, you know, some of the musicians, you know, pre Van Halen, as we know them, um, you know, tech guys. Uh, I interviewed Michael and Dave and Alex, you know, and, and Rudy Laren and, and you know, uh, the guitar Texan guys, um, uh, ideally because I was going to put this book together about Edward. And so I would approach Ed and I go, Ed, man, you know, we, we need to sit down and, and I, I need to talk to you you know, about the book, you know, not about guitars, you know, not like for a guitar world interview, but, you know, I want to know about, you know, when you were a kid, you know, and what was that like when you were growing up back in the Netherlands, you know, and what kind of kid were you? And, you know, what was the relationship like with you and your parents and what relatives do you have, did you have around and how did you get along with Alex? And why did you start smoking when you were 12 years old and drinking? And, you know, and all these questions that, 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 that had to be a part of the book. And Ed always said, well, listen, you know, um, I don't think now is the right time. That was his phrase, you know. Um, and Ed had this thing in his head that a book only came out on an artist when his career was over. And I said, Ed, you're the only one on the planet who would ever think that. I go, that's not true. But for Ed, that's what the reality was. And so I I kept trying to push him as hard as I, I thought was, you know, reasonable. And um, it, it just, I just couldn't get him to sit down or, or commit to the book. So the relationship ends in 2003. Um, fast forward uh, 17 years. 
And I had thought about the book off and on, but never really seriously. Um, and for several reasons. One, um, I knew what an enormous task it was going to be. Um, just collating and chronicling the interviews and the tapes and getting my memories together. I, I go, my God, how can I remember stuff that happened? You know, uh, some of this stuff happened, you know, 1977, 78. So what is that? 45 years ago, um, I thought, I'll never be able to remember that stuff. And, you know, so that was point one. And point two was, I didn't know if I had it in me as a journalist, as a writer. And I write about this in the book. I wanted to write, I mean, look, I wanted to write the greatest book that was ever going to be written about Edward Van Halen. I didn't know if I was capable of doing that. I don't, I didn't know if I was a good enough writer. If I had the words, you know, if I if I had that knowledge to put all those pieces together to celebrate this enormous talent, you know, I mean, I wanted the book to resonate with the reader the same way when you went to a Van Halen concert and Ed would would take a solo the way that you were blown away by a solo. I wanted the book to be elevated to that level, you know, and I didn't know if I was capable of doing that, you know. Um, so I put it off for a lot of years. And then finally, um, I had a couple of people say, man, you got to write the book, write the book, you know. And, you know, I put them off and I put them off and I thought, okay. So I, I kind of sat down and it really wasn't specifically thinking I'm going to start my book today. And that day was August 24th, my birthday. And, and I do remember that day. It was more like, let me try to, let me try to put down some thoughts, some ideas and see what happens. And I remember sitting down and what kind of took shape was the introduction. And I thought, you know what, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, that's kind of different. I've never read anything like that. And I just kind of, you know, followed my nose and, and the next day, actually the next morning, because my cat Arpeggio was waking me up at <laughs> these ungodly hours. So, at, you know, three o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up and feed him. What and a great walk, name. Right. And then walk into the computer room and, um, you know, write a little bit more. And 14 months later, the, the book was done. Um, you know, I didn't think it would ever be done. You know, I'm at like 125,000 words. And that's typically the length of most music bios, music biographies. And I thought, my God, I'm not nearly, I'm not halfway done. And I thought, fuck it. I'm just going <laughs> to keep writing. It's my book, man. And if you want to read it, great. And if you don't want to read it, don't obviously I wanted people to read it, but <laughs> sure, um, sure. you know I realized how how long the book was going to be, but I had 26 years to cover, and so as a long answer to uh, a short question, uh, John, uh, that was kind of the genesis of uh, Tone Chaser. Man, how difficult was this to? Because going through it, it, it you know, it's I think it, you know again we we talked about you humanizing Edward, but this is not just a story that you're telling. Like this is personal to you and it, you know, it doesn't end the way you would like it to end. Um, so how difficult was this for you? Not only to actually finally get to put the book together, but have to revisit some things that, you know, being Frank were probably, you know, painful to revisit. It was unbelievably difficult. Because those moments were so personal to me. I mean, no one ever 
read about them, much less knew about them. I mean, I may have spoken to my brother uh, who was there the night I, I met Edward and, and you know, I've, I've um, immortalized my brother, Mick. Um, um, you know, and I might have said, yeah, Mick, you know, I came back from meds, you know, and he was, you know, man, it wasn't good. And I, I, you know, I, I don't know what's happening. And so it was really hard. And trying to locate the memories was one thing. And then listening to the tapes and going, oh, fuck, yeah, that's that's what happened in, during that conversation, man. And Ed, what? Ed, it changed so much. And what? What what was I doing? Was I what was I saying to him to antagonize him like that? What what could I have possibly done? You know, and that went through my head, man. Every time I listened to one of these conversations, um, so it was extraordinarily difficult. It would have been really easy to have avoided those bits, you know. Um, I mean, I could have taken the easy way out and not gone as deep, but then I thought, I can't do that. If I'm going to finally sit down and write it, it has to be the most honest book it can possibly be. And it has to be honest to me. It has to be honest to Edward, who was alive at the point that I started writing it. And it's got to be uh, honest, um, uh, an honest portrayal to the reader and the fan. Um, you know, only one or two people have said to me, man, you should not have written that. You should not have included that. That has nothing to do with Edward. You know, that has huh. nothing to do with his music. And certainly, you know, I don't want to uh, uh, refer to what moment this one person specifically is talking about. You'll, you can read about that. But these were those more personal moments. And I really disagree. I think it, it is those moments that reveals so much about him um, that, that, that humanizes him so much that without those little bits in there, um, I think the book is, is diminished a lot. And, and I want to say here, the last thing I ever wanted to do, and anybody who reads this book, I would think understands that, was to hurt anybody, Edward or his family, to embarrass anybody, to try to talk trash. I mean, my God, if I thought I was doing that, man, I never would have included those bits at all. Um, but um, I didn't think that was the case. I didn't think I was embarrassing anybody. Edward said those things to me. He said, you can record um, anything you want. You know, um, I waited 17 years to write about some of those moments. And and I, I, I thought, yeah, I thought those parts were I mean, I thought they were amazing moments. They were so deep and inside, and and um, they were incredibly personal. Um, but but they they just had to be included. Um, I thought. Yeah, I got a quick comment, and then O'Brien has a question. But I would agree with you, Steve. And this is hard for me to say because I don't. I'm not trying to disparage this person, but there was a book, a book written couple years ago i think it was and i i bought it because i wanted everything van halen and it was um i'll, I'll just say you know the guy's name is andrew bennett he, you know he wrote you know eruption in the canyon and it's 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 got some amazing pictures it's a it's a crazy time in eddie's life and he, he there's not a lot of words to it it's most, mostly pictures it's a picture a very picturesque book 
But that one, I felt some of the stories he told, you know, he was trying to talk about Eddie's work ethic and this, that, and the other, show what a hard worker he was and why he was the way he was. But I thought some of those came across as a little embarrassing. Whereas with your book, you you lay it all out on the table. And I didn't get that vibe. You know, it was just like you said, this is what he said. And it was incredibly deep. I don't I don't think it came across as disrespectful at all. I mean, so it's it's odd that people would have that outlook. I think I, I, you know, because I know people have said about Sammy Hagar's biography. Oh, you shouldn't have said that about him on the 2004 tour, the set and the other. And to me, that was just kind of facts as well. But. Yeah, I don't I don't see anything disrespectful about any of the things that you showed. You know, I mean, I mean, you love the guy. You say it throughout the book so many times. And it's, you know, you're obviously not doing anything to hurt him. So you come from a place of purity. So I just I don't understand how people could have a, you know. Have well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, and really, if you read the book, you understand that it's a 580 page homage to this guy I was friends with. Yep. I mean, you know, I could have, you know, I mean, I could have, you know, nerded out the entire book and, you know, I, I tried <laughs> to keep that in check and let you understand why I was feeling like that and how would you feel, you, you know, so I tried to put that in context and approach it from a different way. But uh, yeah, anybody who reads the book, I mean, I, I would think that's what they would, they would come away with. Absolutely. Real quick, Brian, before you get to your question, guys, if you want to pick up your copy of Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, my 26-year journey with Edward Van Halen, just go to ToneChaserBook.com. That's where you can pick up a copy. It is excellent. It's over 550 pages. It is extremely detailed. Some really great pictures in there. It's a fantastic read. So go pick up your copy. Uh, Brian, go ahead. Sorry about that. Just want to get a plug in. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Uh, this is great stuff, man. So a quick question here. So I, you know, it's one of those stories of you're always kind of the victim of your own success, right? Cause you have to, the, the bars set higher and higher. And I, it was just fascinating reading like the comments of, I think they get to 84 diver down or, or whatever it was. And everyone's like, all right, uh, Dave, especially a lot of people are like, okay, Ed, what do you have for us? You know? And, and it got to a point where obviously he's sort of resenting that because it's the fact like, look, you become a victim of your own thing. And it's similar to the 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 Beach Boys, if you've seen any of the like the long form series they did where Brian Wilson. OK, he's the genius behind it. And then he gets in the studio and starts showing them stuff off of Pet Sounds. I'm like, well, like what? the You know, and then and Eddie's showing, hey, we got jump here now. And Dave are kind of like, what? what, what? And how did he do you think he balanced that? okay being sort of in that role of like i don't want to piss anybody off but at the same time i've got to really go forth with this vision it seemed like that was something that was always wrestling with him he didn't really want to come across as the bad guy and i wonder if there's times do you think maybe he more should have those are all excellent points um i can tell you that eddie resented the shit out of when it was time to go in to do a new record and it's, what do you got, Eddie? And I talk about that little phrase in the book. And it's just so, with Ed, it was all about respect. And look, nobody else in the band wrote, right? Michael didn't write. Alex didn't write. Uh, you know, Alex might have been there with Edward when, when Ed was maybe messing around with new guitar riffs. And, and Al was, you know, messing around on drums and may have come up with grooves and stuff. Um, you know, and, and Dave 
wrote lyrics and melodies, but he didn't come in with a song. Uh, you know, so so Edward understood what his role was, um, and I think he really embraced that role. But when the approach of the other guys, you know, uh, came down to what do you got, Eddie, as if we don't have to do shit. We know our guitar player Ed's going to come up with stuff, and um, we'll just, you know, we'll just tag along. He hated that. And it was, and again, it was not that they didn't bring in ideas, uh, though he urged Michael, and I write about that, and, and um, you know, set up that little, uh, you know, recording system for Mike to, you know, work out bass parts and you know, work on that thing. And um, Mike never utilized that. To add, that was all disrespect. So with that, it was not that he had the shoulder of that, because he was capable of that. Um, he was obviously a very prolific guy, but it, it was the disrespect. It was them saying, oh, well, we don't really care enough and we're a little too busy and we know you're going to do it, Ed. And that, that made him insane. Um, I also write about Ed, to your point, Brian. Ed oftentimes did take the path of least resistance. And he'd, you know, he'd walk down a trail um, if it was a little wider than this other trail that might have been a little more challenging. Um, honestly, yes, I think he should have pushed back more. Um, look, that's easy for me to say. I mean, you know, but but being around him and I saw the grief and the angst and the distress and it, it affected his health. It, it made him sad. Um, I saw all those things resulting from 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 the band just sort of relegating him to this role. Um, you know, um, yes. I think he should have pushed back more. I think he should have demanded more out of those guys. Um, I, I think he should have told Dave, do not fucking go on a vacation for two weeks while I'm <laughs> in the studio. Right? You're going to stay here and you're going to fucking work on lyrics. And why don't you come into the studio with me? Look, I don't know if that's the way they wrote, but I don't think they were ever in the same room um, uh, when Ed was working on a guitar riff. Uh, you know, and, and Dave was coming up with melodies. Um, that would happen with, with Sammy, and you get that whole different dynamic of the songs and the song structures. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It was just, it, it was an entirely different um, uh, setting. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and Mike, come in with an idea. And, you know, um, I said, you know, <laughs> I said, well, you know, Mike's probably intimidated, you know. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? It's like, you know, George Harrison coming in to Paul and, jo to Paul and John, you know, and coming in with an idea. Um, but the truth is, George did come in with ideas, and they were amazing. And, and, and again, I don't think it was that Edward expected Mike to come in with an amazing idea, though I'm sure he would have, em he would have embraced that. He just wanted to see Michael putting out the effort. That's what was important to Edward. And by Michael not doing that and hiding behind, oh, I'm intimidated, Ed looks at that as disrespect. You know, and Ed says, well, fuck him. He's, you know, I've known him for seven years. Get over it. You know, and that's how Ed looked at it. Um, you know, I mean, I really understand that. I, I, I really do. Um, as hard as that could be, you know, you're in a band. That That's your gig. That's your job. Um, Come in with some base, base ideas, you know, 
Dave, come, you know, show Edward some lyrics before he presents the music to you. Look, man, I'm talking out loud. These are my thoughts. Um, but I think, yeah, they, they, they made Ed crazy. Um, and they ultimately made him sick, you know, the fair warning. And I write about that, you know, and Ed talks about losing weight, man, and getting an ulcer and being ulcer. really sick, um, you know. Um, that was all because he loved the music so much. And somehow these other guys didn't seem to love the music as much as he did. Uh, and he couldn't understand that. So, yeah. So, so because of that, yeah, Edward would take the easy way out sometimes. And, yeah, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'll shoulder it. And, I, see, so, you, yeah. you, you, you mentioned an interesting word. This was actually going to be my next question, and you used the word, you know, intimidating. You know, I've always kind of thought that maybe, I mean, that's got to be the genesis of it. You would think, even with a guy like David Lee Roth, you know, he the guy's got an ego from hell. We all know he's the one that's holding up the Eddie Van Halen tribute concert, you know, from happening. Um, and. If you disagree, I apologize. I just, you know, <laughs> that guy, holy crap, man, what an ego in him. But anyway, um, you know, like having watched him play in person, and again, it was only for 20 minutes, you got to see it so many times. I mean, I would think it would have to be the intimidation factor because when you're in a room with that guy, you're like, how can I possibly compete with that or add to that? You know, I mean, that seems to make total sense to me. I mean, is is that kind of where you where your thinking is on that, or was it just those guys were lazier than Ed? I don't think lazy is the right word because look, I mean, Dave Dave spent must have spent a lot of time working out those lyrics and melodies, and even Ed says, you know, some of my stuff's not that easy to write over, uh, you, you know, and I give Dave credit, and I do, I I do. Um, I can absolutely understand being intimidated. I get it, you know? I mean, I, I, I get it. Um, but I, I, I think you just gotta, you gotta go beyond that, man. This is your gig, you know, this is your life, you know, this is your art. And, and I think you just have to, you've gotta go beyond that, you know? Um, look, I'm not putting this on the same level whatsoever, but you know, when I was around Ed sometimes and, you know, Ed would come over and I write about it, you know, and Ed comes over to my house and I'm there writing a song with my buddy. And, you know, it's kind of like, Ed, you know, would you maybe play something? I mean, it's like, I, I can't believe I asked Edward Van Halen to fucking play it, you know, but it's like, right. you know, or and, and honestly, man, even the moments when I'm interviewing him, you know, those were. I mean, I love those moments, but they were hard, you know, and I had to kind of, I had to like sit outside myself and look at this guy interviewing the greatest fucking guitar player maybe who's ever lived, you know, and that was not an easy thing to do, man, but you gotta, you, you, you gotta go way outside your comfort zone to do that. I I don't think it was that Dave and Mike were, were, were lazy. Uh, they just didn't. And they might say that, Rosen, you're totally full of shit. They just <laughs> didn't love the music or care about the music at the end of the day as much as Edward did. Yeah. Look, nobody's going to have that work ethic, right? No one's going to work like Ed did, you know, building your own studio so you can work virtually 24 hours a day. But um, 
I, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things really that led to the, the breakup of the band. Um, I think ultimately Ed couldn't take that anymore. Um, you know, he wanted to try something new. Um, brings in Sammy Hagar, and that's the honeymoon period for a while. And then that thing turns sour. Um, look, I think at the end of the day as well, I don't, I don't think Edward was maybe the easiest guy to play music with. In many ways, he was incredibly giving, but man, at the same time, he wanted the fucking best out of you. You didn't have to be the, you know, you didn't have to be Jack Bruce or Tim Bogart or John Entwistle, but you had to give 100%. And anything less was disrespect, and Ed saw that instantly. And from there, from there on, you know, from there on, it, it was downhill. So, yeah, I, I get that it wasn't easy being around Edward Van Halen. But the other side of that is you're now in the presence of this guy and you should really be thankful that you are in a band with somebody like this and, and all of those things. A lot of people will tell you that Van Halen could never have done what it had done without Dave. You know, I mean, I, I don't really know how to argue that. You know, if they had another singer in there when they first came out and Ed had been playing those riffs and there was a whole different set of lyrics and melodies, I mean, who can say, look, Dave was critical. Let, 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 let's face it. You know, Dave was that outsized ego. Um, Edward was not. Dave was the front guy. Dave was responsible for a lot of the visuals, you know, a lot of those videos that Ed gets credit for. So, you know, I don't know. For, for a while it worked, you know, but but after a while, I don't think Ed, Ed could deal with it anymore. And um, time to move on. I, I thought it was interesting, and I wrote this down. I hope I had this quote right. It said, Ed told you at one point, I think you were basically saying, like, well, why don't you just tell those guys to get it together or move on or something? I'm paraphrasing here. And Ed said, I'm not confident enough to demand what I want. And that, I, dude, I wrote that down. Like, I, I'm starting to keep, I'm getting old, so I, I keep this journal of, like, <laughs> quotes now. Dude, that is going in there because that that is one of the most amazing things because he was vulnerable enough to admit that and yet he's expecting these guys who kind of as you're both saying are probably like looking at him going i how the hell am i going to do what this guy wants or top what this guy wants and eddie van halen's alone is saying hey i'm not confident enough to demand what i want and 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 to further that point just real quick about roth dave said something like look i know ed's happy if he's miserable do you think there's a, a tad bit of truth to that statement? It's kind of like the yin yang drives, ying drives the yang type of a thing. Like you need the dark and the light. You need that polar opposite pushing against each other. And I understand that there's a shelf life on that. But do you think that fueled them for a, for a certain amount of time? Honestly, man, I, I do not. I don't think, I think when Ed was unhappy, he was unhappy. Um, you know, um, I, I don't think he generated any, joy out of it or you know the the loner thing i no i i, I disagree with that totally and i i know that somewhere in in print ed was saying you know he's fucked up you know dave's the one who's you know happy when he's miserable um you know you're that that line you pulled out Brian, is a really interesting line i'm not confident enough to demand what i want i mean which, which could be an encapsulation of the entire book and, and just the humility of the guy on some levels is just yep 
yeah. un, unbelievable, you know. And I think what he was also referring to is that um, if he did demand these things, Mike, this is the rig, man. You're going to, you know, listen to the trash about the bass. You're going to come over 45 minutes early. I'm going to show you some ideas on bass. You're going to work, you know. Dave, you're not going off on vacation, man. You're going to stay here. We're going to sit and we're going to write, you know, we're going to be ahead of the, the, the curve. Um, I mean, I think he somehow maybe even thinks, well, God, maybe if I piss them off too much. Now, this is just me thinking, you know, maybe if I, what's going to happen, you know? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. And, and it goes back to my statement about Ed sometimes taking the path of least resistance. There's a perfect example of that. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's un unbelievable to me. Uh, but no, Ed, Ed was unhappy when he was unhappy. Um, I can tell you the first two albums, the first two tours is when he was exuberant, man. I, I, I know he was happiest then. Um, he was just always, man, so buoyant. And though there were cracks in the armor early on, um they they didn't matter they didn't matter as much everything was new to him you know man he was on a on a rocket to the moon i mean you know he's gone from playing backyard parties to the whiskey to you know opening for you know some of his heroes to going jumping out on his own with day on the green headlining i mean my god what a what a very, very quick rise to fame. Um, but yeah, I, I thought Edward always should have demanded more um, on a lot of levels, you know, management, you know, Sammy comes in with his manager. I go, who would do that? I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't possibly understand Ed. There's no way that that can lead to something good down the road. I didn't say that to him. I didn't think it was my place. Should I have said something? I don't know. Um, you know, um, he talks about Ted Templeman. And I know he loved Ted and, and recognized Ted as a critical element. And Ted was. And then he says some of those things about Ted and Ted doesn't work on some records and then brings Ted back. I could never understand that. But there was something in Ed. Maybe he felt comfortable, um, you know. Um, so I don't know. Finding a singer. Ed, Ed says to me, go find me a singer. <laughs> I think, yeah, right. I'm going to find you a singer. Like you don't know any singers. Yeah. <laughs> like you couldn't call up fucking Roger Daltrey and have him sing in your band. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> but he was, he was serious, you know? And, and it's, and it's not that he didn't know singers. Obviously he, he knew a million singers, but I don't know if he, wanted to or had any desire to sort of connect those dots about what was required to, you know, maybe have them send in audition tapes or get Alex and him in a room and bring sick. I do not know, man. I, I just, I just do not know, but you know, so he finds Sammy through his uh, mechanic and what if they didn't have the same mechanic, you know, I mean, <laughs> Patty Smythe and maybe that would have been cool. I don't know, but, yeah, man, I, I, I think Ed, just because he was so, such a singular artist in this world, I, I think he should have asked for the sun and the moon and the stars and, and his band should have given that to him. Those so, are my feelings. 
So really quick, quickly, it, and I, I did laugh at the part where Ed's asking you to find him a singer, and you're, you're like, wait, <laughs> yeah. are you serious? Did you, did you like, actually go on an active hunt? Like, were you scouring clubs or, or just looking for talking to people? Did you actually try to find, like, an underground, nobody's ever heard of this guy, he might be good for you? Honestly, I, I, I didn't because I thought he was joking. I did okay. play one tape for him of a singer. And I don't want to mention his name. Um, um, and he hated it. He heard like five seconds. He goes, ah, no, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because Ed, Ed loved um, Bon Scott. And yet Sammy is about, uh, you know, the antithesis of Bon Scott, you know. And I think I had likened Dave to Bon Scott once. And I thought they had kind of a little bit of a, growl and they said nah you know Dave's not anything like Bon Scott I think he you know he got pissed off that I that I made that comment but um yeah no Brian I know I never differ so honestly man I wish I had I wish I could have said yeah man I'm the guy who found the singer for Van Halen because <laughs> exactly what you suggested is what I I thought they should have done was find an unknown singer um some unbelievable guy who would have you know Drain blood to have sat there in a room with Ever Van Halen writing songs. Um, Warner so the, Brothers would never have allowed that. The uh, person, the person, the tape that you played him though, can you at least say was that like somebody who has recorded and we would have heard of? You don't have yes. to obviously. Okay, I'm just curious. Wow. I figured it yeah. was. But... Yeah, it, it was not an unknown guy. How's All right. Born? <laughs> yeah, it's Ozzy. Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> Bruce Dickinson. Here's Jeff Tate. No, 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 not him. Um, <laughs> so real quick, and you know, not to sidetrack, but I did have a. You just brought up a very interesting point. So we are talking about Van Halen, and and you you made the comment that you thought they should have gotten an unknown guy with some incredible set of pipes and everything. Do you think it would have been as successful at that point? Because I feel like. You know, full disclosure, I love all the Van Halen records, but my favorite era is the Sammy stuff by like the tiniest smidge. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always felt like the Sam- Sammy's infusion of like his positive energy and his experience kind of helped drag them through that quagmire that Dave had created near the end. Do you do, how do you think it would have been as successful as the Sammy years with four straight number one records and all the tours and all that, do you think that an unknown guy could have gotten them to that level? Do you think just, just amazing singing chops and being a great front, front man would have, would have had the same result? Well, when you confront me like that, John, <laughs> I have to thanks. Shit like that. Now I feel like an ass. <laughs> thanks for nothing. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, it's probably doubtful unless somehow there was something in this guy that that triggered audiences and, you know, it was like seeing, uh, I don't know, Mick Jagger for the first time or something. I, I mean, the reality was, you know, Van Halen, I mean, they were such a proven entity and people had this sense of them that, yeah, I mean, when I think about it, certainly... Yeah, bringing in an unknown probably wouldn't work. I, I, I guess I, I I love the idea because I think that, that it would have given Ed a, a chance to really expand everything he wanted to do, you know, man. 
And, you know, he could have brought all the keyboards in with the new singer and, you know, the new studio. And, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe they would have made one record and wouldn't have worked and they would have gotten Sammy. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't really know, but, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the truth of it is if I really look at it, yeah, I, it's highly doubtful. Um, they were such a, you know, people had these expectations, um, from them. Um, I, I never would have guessed Sammy Hagar being the singer. I mean, that was a, um, but, uh, I mean, Edward got it obviously. And it obviously worked as you said. So, um, yeah, you know, which brings sort of a peripheral, peripheral point, John, you know, there was talk about Ed doing a solo record and bringing in different singers. Mm -hmm. I thought that could have been amazing. You know, Phil Collins, holy, I mean, that would have been, you know, to hear, you know, especially if they had, they could have written together. The one that I really thought would have been extraordinary was Pete Townsend. That to me would have been, oh my God, that would have been amazing. You know, and I have the little discussion in the book, you know, and Ed, Ed wanted to do it at 5150. So he wanted Pete to fly over there and he wanted to use Mike and Al, which was a tribute to Mike and Al. And Pete, I think, was thinking, no, you're going to come over to England. I think by that time, uh, Keith had passed away. I don't know if John was still alive, but but he kind of wanted to use his mates, right, in his studio. Um, I think that was, I think that would have been amazing. And yeah, Patty Smythe, you know, uh, I think Joe Cocker was mentioned. That could have been yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Then we really would have had a sense, though those are all known entities, I think we would have had a sense of Edward writing outside of Van Halen because obviously his writing is not going to be, you know, he's not going to write a Van Halen lick for, for Phil Collins. I thought that could have been amazing. Um, and that's sad that that never uh, materialized. Yeah. But that's again, again, thinking, well, why should I do that? Who's really, you know, and this is me postulating. I don't think Ed saw any importance in it. And who would really care? And why would I do that when everything I want to do is with Van Halen? There was no sense of the, um, his own legacy and stepping outside of who he was, you know, you know, so it's sad. I mean, I, I, I wish someone had pushed him more, you know, Al or management, you know, I would think that maybe the label would have embraced something like that, but you know, there yeah, you I go. Mean, see, and, and to your point, like, and again, I feel like an ass putting you on the spot with that other question. <laughs> I, just, I just had to ask, but I, I think, you know, that it might have had the only well actually let me phrase it a different way the only reason i think that it might not have had a chance with an unknown singer is because of what i feel is eddie's most underrated quality at least in the public eye and it ties into what you were just saying about this solo album with you know phil collins and joe cocker and pete Townsend. you know it's his songwriting like people talk about him as this guitar god but no one talks enough about what an unbelievable songwriter he was and i think you know an unknown singer at the time when sammy came in who maybe was not familiar with you know this type of world whirlwind atmosphere like maybe wouldn't have latched on to the interesting arrangements that eddie had but the solo record i think to your point you know would have been absolutely fucking killer because he was writing all this varying stuff and he could write you know hey here's here's you know, maybe like a mellower tune for a Phil Collins and, you know, something more aggressive for this guy, you know, like, I mean, 
I, so to your point, I think that would have been fantastic as well. I've always thought the exact same thing because, you know, he wrote in so many different styles that but they were all Van Halen rock and roll. That, I mean, where I mean, because one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot in the book because it's very personal. You're talking about more personal things. But his songwriting ability, no one really talks about that enough. And I, I, you know, knowing him as you did, I'm sure you probably would agree with that because you sat and you wrote a song with him. You know, he came in and worked with your buddy, like not to tell tales out of school from the book, but you got to write a song with Eddie Van Halen. So, I mean, talk about his songwriting ability a little bit. His his uh, talents as a composer and orchestrator are highly neglected. Um. And and you bring up the, the 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 amazing night when he comes over to my house in the Hollywood Hills, and I'm there with my buddy Ron De La Vega, and we're working on one of my songs, and it, you know there's a knock at the door, and I open it up, and Ed's there, you know, and I didn't know he was coming over, and you know he walks in, you know, and, and you know he sees us, you know, the little four track, and my buddy Ron is playing keyboards, and um, you know what's the first thing Ed does? He walks over, you know, and he picks up the guitar, and you know watching him and listening to him and he talks about it um you realize that he really understands in a very organic way um how to build a song and how to you know orchestrate a song um and and watching him and listening to him you know i i I had a much deeper understanding of how he approached his own music. Um, he was an unbelievable writer. And if you think about those Van Halen songs, I mean, uh, you know, the first couple of records, maybe maybe in the first three or four records, I mean, those are like short songs. Those are like pop songs. Those are like, they're like under three minutes, man. And the, the, the yep. solo sections are, I don't know what they are, eight bars or 16 bars. They're not these drawn out solo sections. And for Ed, it was, you know, cutting off all the meat. Um, uh, he, he just had this unbelievable intuition, and certainly a lot of that comes. And I think Ed, Ed maybe downplays a little bit his um, his the knowledge that came from from playing piano. Obviously, all of music is based on on the piano keyboard, um, you, you know, and harmony uh, and, and melody and everything. So I, I think Ed knew a shit more than than people even give him credit for. And a lot of his chords, you know, these are like these weird, you know, sus augmented, you know, keyboard chords, you know, and, and the stretches and things. Um, with Ed, it was, it was just so subtle, you know, he would, you know, if you listen to his songs or, or, you know, that night that he hung out at my place, you know, and he would play, you know, and he'd play the verse and then he'd add just a, a simple little extra accent. And it was just so perfect, you know, and, 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 I had been writing songs for about 800 years at that time. And obviously I was nowhere near the guitar player he was, but I thought I had a, a decent understanding of, of songwriting. And I understood, you know, harmonic composition and, you know, perfect and imperfect cadences and leading tone, you know, and I, I, I listened to the Beatles and Sting. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't write like that in a million years, but I understood, you know, and I thought, you know, I, I I had a little bit of an understanding, and I watched him for five minutes, like, oh my God, that, that's that's what, it is. you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I I would never have played that, I I would never have thought that in a million years. Um, 
yeah, man, it, it was it was it was a combination of having the knowledge and then kind of approaching it organically. Um, it was amazing. Yeah, and, and see, to, to your point, John, those songs were so amazing. You know, it's like you would have to be like a really bad singer not to be able to come up with something that sounded like really good over it. The verses you know, are like choruses, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, I get that Sammy's a professional, you know, he's done it all those years. I don't know, man. I still think there was some singer out there who could have come in and blown everybody away. It would have been unbelievable. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna hang, hang tough here, John. I'm not going to let you push me around here. Um, okay. Yeah, man, his his songwriting skills were scary, you know, and I saw him, you know, and we'd sit and we'd play guitars once in a while and I'd, I'd hear how he'd, you know, go over a riff, over a riff, go over a riff, go over a riff. Oh, that's not working, you know, and it was just, it was remarkable, man. Um, yeah, I mean, to, yeah. to your point, like with the chords, like I'm, I, I, I play guitar, bass, drums. I'm, I'm actually a singer by trade, whatever, and. But I love the. I, I try to learn Van Halen stuff. I'm not great, and my one of my favorite riffs of all time is the is the uh, title track uh, to Fifty One Fifty. So I checked out the tab, and I was like, "What in God's name is this five finger crap? Like I can't play that." I mean, it's just it's. I mean, he'll go he'll go from something like somebody get me a doctor, which is like a pull off power chord, to to Fifty One Fifty, which is you know like palm muting an entire chord but then breaking it down like as a broker like it's just it goes from the most simplistic to the most difficult and it all flows so goddamn yeah. well like even 5150 itself that riff is so difficult and then it just goes to like i mean it's it's unbelievable and and it, i just think it doesn't get doesn't get talked about enough so um we, we do have a question in the chat for you uh, our very good buddy, Discuss Metal Joe, says, may I have permission to record the audiobook? JT and Brian can read it so you know it'll sound great. <laughs> can't can't wait to read the book. Are, are, are there any plans for an audiobook? <laughs> um, not at the moment. Um, Especially not if JT and Brian are going to read it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my God. Not at the moment. Maybe somewhere down the road. Um, yeah, we'll see. It's it's I just as somebody who drives like two hours one way to play uh, gigs with my band, so I'm an audio audiobook ophile. Uh, I got to tell you, I would holy shit would I devour that man. My wife would hate me. <laughs> like, <laughs> are we listening to this again? Yes, we are. Now be quiet. Go back to sleep. <laughs> so I, I, I'm trying to picture. So Steve, are you this guy at the end of the bar and, and I'm out on a weeknight and I just say, hey, what do you do? And you start regaling someone of tales of, well, um, you know, I got to hear Out of Love Again and, and, you know, Light Up the Sky and, you know, what would become the best of both worlds before they were actually on an album. Is this like a, a, a Tom Brady Super Bowl syndrome where you can't, when it's happening at the time, you, you're like, oh, my God, but you still can't really appreciate it until you get to a place like now. And you're just like, it just does it just blow your mind thinking of, of what you got to experience? It's um, it's pretty surreal. But in answer to your first question, Brian, if I'm the guy at the end of the bar and somebody says, "What do you do?" You know, or "What have you seen?" I go, "Well, I write for music magazines." 
I'm 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 not the uh, I'm not the guy that's gonna say yeah man I hung out with everybody right. but anyway <laughs> yeah cut this guy off but there are moments in the book and I write about it I specifically address that you know I say you know as the sort of the the big question why me you know why me you, you know Edward could have had friends, you know, and he could have made friends with anybody he wanted, you know, they could have been brilliant guys or, you know, uh, you know, other famous musicians. And obviously he had other famous musician buddies. Um, but then I kind of turned around and I said, well, why not me? You know, um, you know, you talk about yin and yang. I mean, I was, I was certainly the yang to Edward's yin, you know, I mean, I was, I was introverted. I was, uh, I had very little self-confidence, you know, um, you know, but Ed always made me feel like so big, you know, and, and so sure and, and confident, you know. Um, but yes, man, I, I listen to those tapes and those interviews and there'll be a moment when I go, my God, I, I'm really sitting there talking to him about, this thing, or my God, Ed really came over that day and he's really playing my piece of shit Strat and he's playing those songs from the Van Halen 2 record, you know? And I, even even to this day, and even as I talk about it, it's that weird thing, it, you kind of go in and out because we are talking about stuff that happened um, 46 years ago? Yep. You, you know, so, I mean, just the memories themselves are so distant, um, but trying to capture the emotions and and and, and, and trying to recreate that the, the situation. Yeah, sometimes I think, did that, did that really happen? I mean, yes, I know it really happened because I'm talking to you about it. And I can look on my walls and I can see pictures of me and Edward and go, okay, I was there, that happened. But, but yes, in a in a really cerebral, emotional way, yes, a lot of it seems impossible that it that it ever happened, or, or certainly that it was that long a period. Um, it, it really, really does feel like that. Is it the ultimate irony, though? Because you you say many times where you know Ed was seemed very defensive and insecure, and then here he's the guy sort of picking you up, saying, "No, man, you're my bud. You know, you're." You know, you're you're a competent songwriter, guitar player. What you're doing is cool. Change this around or whatever. I trust you as a friend. And you just talk about that for for a second. So it only took me 580 pages to try to understand <laughs> Edward. Twelve hours of therapy. <laughs> exactly. To, or to, I try to understand the dynamic between us. And yes, man, everything you say uh, is true and incredibly complex. Edward, and, and, and I can only describe it as Edward was very secure in himself as this guitar player. And, and he knew who he was. I take that back. I don't think he knew who he was. He knew, he, he knew he was a very, very good guitar player. He, he knew that. You didn't have to say to him, my God, Ed, that was amazing. Like you talked about before, he would get defensive, man. He didn't like that. Because somehow by 
defining it by saying it was really good that somehow lessened it in some way. Like like he didn't need to hear it. Like the artistry itself didn't need to be defined. You didn't you don't need to tell me that it's good. I know it's good, you know. And I, I always give the example of, you know, you're sitting there watching Da Vinci paint, you know, and you go, Wow, that's that looks really good, you know, and he'd like turn and go, I I know that. I don't need to hear that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that was a difficult tightrope to, to balance on because part of me wanted to say ed my god that's amazing and that's incredible every time you played me something or every time he said something to me but in getting back to your point brian whenever i had those feelings you know he was always there and he would never never ever make me feel like oh come on man you don't be an asshole don't be a I mean, he might sort of say that to kind of kick me out of that move. It was never to make fun of me or belittle me. You know, man, he was unbelievable. And yet there were moments when he, you know, for want of a better description, needed a shoulder to cry on. You know, when Dave left, he was hurt. I mean, he was really hurt bad, you know. And I have those discussions in there. And it was, it was, yeah, it was this thing and, and, Somehow he needed something in me and I needed something from him. Um, you know, I think on some levels, you know, had I been sort of like this, maybe like an amazing guitar player or, you know, some Nobel Prize winning author and was sure of himself and walked that way and, you know, talked that way, maybe this dynamic doesn't happen. Um, um I mean, at the at the heart of it, like you know, I I told you I'm the guy at the end of the bar. If somebody talks to me, I go, yeah, well, I, I write, you know. I mean, I I really am am that person, you know. And maybe Ed found comfort in that. Maybe Ed um um he felt safe there, um you know. And if nothing else, being a rock journalist is being a uh, a listener. And um, trying to understand the the mind of the of the electric guitar player, and I I think I, I'm I'm pretty good at that. But yeah, man, it was a very tangled dynamic, um, you know, um, uh, that that would change later on, and that was because it changed and it morphed into this other thing. That's when things got hurtful, and uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was really kind of crushed by what had happened but um yeah i mean i i love the guy for that i mean he was uh, he was like a you know my psychologist and you know I, I could say just about anything to the guy um play guitar in front of him who's gonna play guitar in front of eddie van halen you know but you know again it goes back to that thing about respect and i tried it's like ed i'm trying to get the fucking finger thing you do you know and i do it over and over and it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong and i get one that's right he goes yeah man that's it and that's all he wanted to hear he didn't care <laughs> that i didn't play guitar as well as he did that could not have cared less um um but i tried you know and that and that's what was important to him so um i think he knew or i hope that he knew that you know how much i i, I cared about him you know um and would never hurt him and i don't think i ever did well, I think I think you know you use a word throughout the book, Steve, that I think is such a great way to describe Edward. Edward, it's like you use the word humility so many times, and I would say 
I, like, and this is just an outside observation, but the fact that you wrote this book and as much as this is a, you know, it's kind of a very, very intimate view of, of Ed, it's also an intimate view of you. And as I've read this, I, I think that one of the reasons it resonates so well and one of the reasons that I think you guys were as close as you were, I, I, I come back to the term emotionally honest, you know, and I don't think a lot of people are emotionally honest, but Edward from, you know, even in the interviews that are, are just the public ones that we see, he tends to say more than your average quote unquote rock star. And with the stuff, the stories that you tell, and the conversations that you detail, I think you're the same way. And I think that's where it came from is that he saw, I hate using this term. It's so cliche, but follow me here, a kindred spirit. You know what I mean? Like, and he understood that you understood where he was coming from on an emotional level. Do, do you think that's accurate at all? I, I think it's very accurate, John. And if you look at the beginning of the relationship, I met Edward uh, that night in June, 1977, eight months before the first record comes out. So he was just Edward Van Halen, a guy in a local band who had signed a deal on Warner Brothers. Now that to me was monstrous. I mean, that was incredible, but um, he was not yet Edward Van Halen legend. Um, and on top of that, I had never heard, and I write about this, and somehow I don't know how it ever happened. I had never heard him play. I'd never seen Van Halen play before I met him. So I'm kind of talking to him that first time, just as uh, this guy. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I was a music journalist, but I'm not speaking to him as a music journalist. I'm speaking to him as someone who was introduced to him uh, by a common friend, Michelle Meyer, who booked the whiskey, and she knew I was writing for guitar magazines and she knew this guitar player, Edward Van Halen, was upstairs. You got Steve, you got to meet this guy. So we just start talking. So I, I think that that seed, you know, if, if I can use that term, was really planted there. And, and Ed, it was just this amazing conversation. And virtually every other, every conversation we had subsequently was the same way. Um, and yes, I, I think Ed recognized in me a kindred spirit. Um, you know, um, somebody who kind of wore his heart on his sleeve. Um, and, you know, I would kind of open up to him. And I think he knew that he could open up to me. And I wasn't going to go tell somebody or go write about it, even though he'd oftentimes say, don't print that, you know. But that was more <laughs> times than not if he was talking about a band dynamic you know, uh, which at the time had I written about it, you know, him talking about Michael or Dave, you know, when the third album hadn't come out yet, yes, that could have been disastrous, but you know, I, I, I never printed any of that stuff. Um, yes, I, I, I think I was a kindred spirit. I, I really do. And, and I think that Ed, yeah, Ed felt, Ed, and I don't say this lightly, Ed, Ed trusted me, man. And that meant so much to me that, you know, I would have done anything for the guy. And I, you know, I was always, I, I always tried to be there for him. Actually, my regret is that maybe I, I, I should have opened up more to him and maybe should have said some other things to him. Um, 
I mean, I think about his cigarette smoking, you know, and <laughs> I just despised yeah. it and I write about it and I would get migraine, migraine headaches because of cigarette smoke, not from Edward, which it never happened somehow, but you know, you know, or, or the drugs or the drinking, you know, even with a, a very good friend, I mean, do you say those things to him? I mean, do you, I don't know, man, I did, I could not bring myself to, to say those things and I regret that. Um, you know, some other bits and pieces, you know, Ed, why would you let Sammy bring in his own manager? I thought that was a mistake. Look, I'm not saying that that he wasn't um, an amazing manager and, and did right by the band. But, you know, I, I thought that was a mistake. Signing with Kramer. Oh, yeah. Endorsing Kramer. Look, I'm not talking about the quality of Kramer's guitars. Edward obviously dug the guitars. But why would you endorse the guitars? You could say to Kramer, listen, these are the specs. Make 10 guitars for me. If I like them, I'll use them. And if not, I won't use them. But you're not going to use my name. And it goes back to Edward not understanding his own legacy or I'm thinking it's important enough to do that. In Ed's mind, well, yeah, fuck it. You know, I'll put my name on a guitar. Who, who cares, you know? And then we find out what, and I don't want to give the book away, but we find yeah. out what Kramer did by bringing in fucking Steve Vai who's an amazing guitar player, but you know, them, them betraying Edward. How, I told how do you, you Ed, but I didn't tell you, you know, how do you do that? Like, yeah, I mean, real quick, not to give the book away, but you, you just said like, how the fuck do you do that? Like Steve, I amazing, but he's Eddie Van Halen in the mid eighties. There was no one bigger than Eddie Van Halen in the mid eighties. How does that even happen? That Berardi guy is such a jackass, man. Um, I don't, I never liked Dennis Berardi. I write about that. He treated me like garbage because he was always afraid I was whispering in Ed's ear. Yeah, Ed, play more keyboards. You know, that, that was Dennis's great fear. So what does he do? He goes out and finds Steve Vai, again, a, an amazing guitar player. But, um, you know, Dennis making Edward buy his own fucking tickets to the NAMM show. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I never, and that goes back to Ed never wanting to do the book way in back in '85 because it's not important. No one's going to care. My career, people will think it's over. You know, and that goes to the humility of the guy, and you know, a little bit of that humbleness or insecurity. I, as astonishing as it seems, um, that's where it all comes from, I believe. But 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 there's the juxtaposition too because you also said at one point that that Ed, you said something about new music and Ed said I turn on the radio and all I hear is me, so at the same time you know there's this weird thing of like, I don't know that I'm doing this or whatever and then he turns on the radio and you know yeah. I mean there's 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 not a guitar player, probably born, you know. I don't know, that was 16 or 18, let's say 14 to 21 when when the first Van Halen album came out that, you know, or, or a teenage boy that said, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm dropping everything to do this. I mean, Miles Kennedy as much as said so, right, from Alter Bridge, and he's more of a singer than a guitar player, right? And, and that's not a unique story, right? You know, I mean, you've heard that probably from 5 million people, and it's like the, the idea that, that like, he kind of didn't know, but he sort of still did know, that's a weird thing to sort of, probably bounce around in someone's brain you know what i mean 
And I thought there was another interesting point where he said, and I, I can't use the word because we're politically correct here, but he's like, okay, so-and-so copy, so-and-so copy, so-and-so copy, so-and-so. And it's inbreeding, right, to the point of, and Ed was like, look, I, yeah, you know, I, I invented the, the, you know, maybe mostly invented the finger tapping, and then I moved on with my life, you know? And like, did how did, how did you feel about his whole perception of, of how that was perceived by him and, and what he did he re- truly know how he had influenced so many guitar players? Th- those were the kinds of discussions I wish I could have had more from him, Brian. Um, yeah, I wanted to sit down and talk to him about all those guitar players because his, his uh, you know, the, the, the panorama of the guitar players he liked was pretty vast, you know. He loved Alan Holdsworth and, you know, um, Billy Gibbons. Um, you know, but there were so many other guitar players I wanted to ask him about. Um, it is strange. Yeah, he said he'd turn on the radio and, and yeah, you know, you hear people and they were copying him and that, that pissed him off. And yet he never would say, yeah, man, because, you know, I'm, you, you know, my, uh, you know, my approach has been so unique and, you know, everybody listens to me. It, it, that was never part of it, you know. I, I don't know if he ever connected those two pieces that he was so pervasive everywhere that guys, like you said, were, were bound to listen to him and be influenced by him. Um, it was a strange thing. I, I really wish I could have had more conversations um, about his influences. And I, I, I write a little bit about, you know, how Edward's knowledge of, of music, it wasn't real deep. I'm, I'm not talking about his technical knowledge as a guitar player or songwriter. Yeah, that was ridiculous. But, you know, like the history of, of, of music, you know, and, and when he comes over to the house and I, you know, let him borrow some records and he had never heard of Les Paul at that point, you know, and I gave him a bunch of like guys, uh, Steely Dan, who he knew of, uh, but, you know, Larry Carlton, a lot of these kinds of guys, um, y- you know, he was into the prog stuff and I gave him a bunch of, you know, deeper prog records, you know, um, I think I gave him like soft machine and Coliseum, you know, some of these more obscure English bands. So yeah, man, it was, it was a weird thing. Um, I, I wish, I really, really wish I could have more conversations. Ed, do you realize who you are and what you've done? You know, but I think he only would have gotten pissed off by a, a comment like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is it, I mean, do you, is it, how do I phrase this? I, I guess I'll just like flat out. Is it possible to explain why he was different? And I say that because in your career, you've interviewed everybody like a Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and Ted Nugent, you know, all, you know, even, even beyond guitar players, you know, Ronnie James Dio, all these incredible figures. Um, but Eddie always felt a little different and you know he did feel a little more personal you know it's you know rock stars always feel like oh you know they're the rock star i'm the fan something about eddie was always different it was always oh man that guy's kind of like me in some way is there a way to i mean quantify that difference why he was so special and why he wasn't like the typical famous musician rock star guy I mean, I suppose that's another conversation I wish I could have had in in depth. Um, yeah, Edward, Edward, yeah, Edward was the guy on stage who smiled and didn't grimace and didn't, 
you know, his poses were all of the moment, you know, and they weren't, they weren't orchestrated or choreographed. Um, yeah, you felt like you could be his friend and, and, and you could hang out with him. Um, it's such a hard question. I mean, how do you characterize, you know, charisma or that thing? What set him apart? Because as you said, there were some other very good guitar players around at the time when Ed was playing. I mean, Randy Rhodes, you know, oh, yeah. George Lynch, Warren DeMartini, Rusty Anderson. I mean, these are amazing guitar players. But Ed, Ed had that thing, you know. Um, it, it, I don't know what that is, man. It, it's just something that every note he played mattered to him. And you sense that. And, and when he was holding a guitar and, and playing music, you had the feeling that there was no other place he would rather have been. Um, it's a, it's a hard question. Um, I mean, I, I don't think it's anything, obviously it's all tied up in the music. Had he been, you know, a marginal guitar player and, uh, you know, uh, an average songwriter. I mean, you know, I, I don't think he would have been the Eddie Van Halen that we knew. Um, I, I do believe that looking like that certainly didn't hurt. You know, had he been a 300 pound balding uh, guy with pimples, you know, who had written that same music, you know, you know what I mean? But um, so sure. that, was huge, that was a huge part of it. Obviously the smile. Um, I don't know, man, you just felt connected to the guy in a way that you didn't with all these other guitar players. They, they were always somehow one, one degree removed. Um, and that, that, I don't, that's nothing that Edward ever tried to cultivate. That That's just who he was. Um, um, yeah, I mean, he was a rare diamond, man. He was just, he was just one of a kind. I mean, I wish I had a more specific answer for you. Um, yeah, it's that, That's why I asked because to me, it is difficult. And again, I, you know, I started off the show telling, you know, my experience of meeting him. And to me, it was just being in his environment in that, like, you know, he was on the stage and, and I was down in the crowd. Even then, it just felt like it wasn't just the rock star guy up there jamming. It was, it was like, it, it, it's the only way I can say it is it was like one of your buddies who's amazing at music gets up there and he's jamming. You're like, God damn, that guy can play. And it was just, there was something so personal about him. And, and, and on top of that, the playing itself was, you know, I've seen any number of like, you know, really famous and phenomenal guitar players, like nose to nose, you know, Marty Friedman, guys like that. And, you know, Zach Wild and stuff. And, and with Ed, I mean, I'd read, like, I, like I said, I've read everything there is to read about Eddie Van, every article, every, you know, to the point where, you know, in your book, you know, some of the stuff that was in guitar world, I knew the parts that were published because I'm like, I remember this, this is the part like I'd read it so many times, you know, and everyone always said, like, when you watch him play in person, it's like he's born to do it it was like this is what he was put on earth to do and i always thought that sounded kind of hyperbolic or cheesy but i'm not kidding you man like when he walked out with that guitar steve like he he went like to all of us we're like oh shit shut up and his fingers i'll never forget this his hands barely moved and this is in an arena down in columbus ohio that holds like twenty four thousand people it's just 50 people and him on stage and he just barely touches the guitar and it screams and he grabs my like, Wah! 
And then all of a sudden you hear all the notes, but his hands are doing this. Like it, it looks like slow motion. And I was like, I, I, I will never forget it as long as I live. I went, what the fuck am I watching? Like it was everything I'd read was true. It looked like, I mean, it was, I'll never see anything like it ever again. He was just born to do that. And I mean, for you to have that experience, you know, in your living room with just a, you know, just plugged in, like, I mean, what, what, what is it like for you to read these other stories and these other books, but you're not reading it from my perspective. Like, I'm like, Oh my God, this is such a great story. You're you, for you, that's personal. You're like, oh, yeah, I understand that. Oh, yeah, I was there. Like, can you explain what that's like where, where all these things about Eddie have just this extra added meaning? I know it's a weird question. It may be a difficult one, but it's just that just struck me while I was reading your book. Like, what is it like to read the things I'm reading but actually know what's going on behind Eddie's eyes, man, like in his mind as this is happening? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, to to be honest, John, I, I, I haven't read a lot of those other books um, cover to cover. Um, but getting back to your point about Edward and the guitar, there are, yes, there are guitar players who were born to it. And I can think of two. Look, there are hundreds of astonishing guitar players in this world. But the ones who I believe are truly elevated to that Van Halen status was Hendrix, who I, I, I never met him. I uh, never had a chance to interview him. I did see him. I did see him live twice. Um, um, uh, and Jeff Beck. Um, and I when I interviewed Jeff Beck, um, uh, I actually brought a guitar that I had a this all walnut. Uh, 66 Strat, really nice guitar. And I sat there two feet away from Jeff watching him play. And I, I'd never seen anything like that. I'd seen a lot of guitar players hold guitars in place. And this was, this was something not of this earth. Um, Ed, yeah, Ed, Ed, Ed did that stuff and it was effortless and it was no other guitar player could ever play like that. Um, you, you know, I mean, getting back to your point about, you know, reading this other stuff in books, I mean, I just haven't read enough books to know that, uh, you know, more specifically what you're talking about. Um, I can tell you sitting in my living room and watching him play the guitar, you know, sitting that close, it was, we all know how amazing he is and we've seen him on stage and, and we've seen him live watching him play being that close you know and and not even plugged into an amp or plugged into one of my little you know deluxe or ampeg whatever it was and and watching him and watching his left hand on the neck man and and it was just and he's doing these things man and it's like you know and watching his picking hand and then does that flutter thing you know and he had a really heavy pick attack um yeah, his left hand was really light, man. But he had a really, which is how he articulated all those notes. You know, it was just, you know, I kept saying to myself, I kept saying to myself, oh my God, he he really is that amazing. He really is that extraordinary. It's not like I think he was that extraordinary. He truly is. You know, um, yeah, it, it was it was just amazing. I mean, um, 
yeah, I mean, I was lucky. I mean, I was lucky to have been there for sure. Um, yeah. That's, that's, like I said, it's it's crazy, like, reading your book because, again, I – it is it is personal to me and I, I didn't have nearly the experience you did but in the tiny tiny bit of time that I had like the book resonates I'm like yeah that's how I felt like you know like it just resonated off of him I mean it was it was just oh my god it was <laughs> I'm sorry all right so so one of my buddies has blown me up Steve he has he has a question for you yeah he wa- he wants to know if he can buy an original edition signed by you he wants he wants the original version and he wants a signature. He wants to know what he has to pay to get to get that from you. I'll sell him an original edition signed for eight hundred dollars. I'm kidding. I wish I wish I had some first editions left. I was I stupidly sold them all and didn't even hold back a box or two for myself. <laughs> I think I have honestly, man. I think I have one. Maybe two copies. Uh, I, I wish I, I wish I did, man. I would, uh, I'd happily sell you one and sign it for you. Um, I'll, I'll tell him a grand. Would, would a grand get it done? <laughs> a grand? A grand? I might be able to fish up. I might be able to find another uh, first edition. No. You could just handwrite um, it in a spiral notebook. There you go. Yep. Yeah. He's. He is. Yeah, see, there, there he is. There he is. Sold. All right. You just made a thousand dollars. See, there you go, Steve. So let me ask you a question, James. Is it because it has to be because of the cover? Because the contents, the the, the text is basically the same, even though the second edition. And I never told anybody this. Um, in the first edition, I had made a few. Uh, there were a few typos, which make me cringe like you cannot even believe when I come across <laughs> them. So I tried to fix them for the second edition, and a couple of the interior pictures are a little different. Um, you know, the, the the photo sections are a little different. I think I added a couple more photos. That uh, picture of uh, Ronnie Dio, and I think the uh, picture of the Iron Maiden guys and me uh, with the guitar. Um, but everything else is exactly the same. So is it just the cover that you want? I mean, it has to be. And the back cover, but the back cover of the second one is also different. So well, uh, I could I could tell you, knowing him as I do, it's he he wants every Van Halen thing he can get. Like he is like I, I play in a band with two guitar players and we absolutely nerd out over Eddie. Like they we we literally I I, I live two hours away from them. And we'll get together when we don't have shows. And one of the things that we did one night, we sat down there with a couple bottles of Crown, and they brought a bunch of amps and effects, and they were damn sure going to recreate the wet, dry, wet sound from 1995's Balance Record. So that's the kind of shit that we do when we get together, right? That's how nerdy we are for this. Well, my buddy Jimmy, he's my original Van Halen buddy because he is the brother-in-law of a guy I played in a band with for several years back in my like you know late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, whatever. And he said, you've got to meet my brother-in-law. He might be a bigger Van Halen fan than you. And I said, that person doesn't exist. So he got us in touch. And Jimmy and I have been friends ever since. And he is he is an absolute goof. And I love him. And I he he wants it because he is absolutely he's been texting me off the hook about this interview as we're going. Like, it's like this guy fucking rules. Like, I need that book. Give me a first edition signed. 
<laughs> so so there you go. If you can if you can drum one up, you got a thousand dollars. And uh, you know, if you have PayPal, there you go. <laughs> I'll I'll look I'll look around. I'll look around. <laughs> There you go. Jimmy, and if, if not, Jimmy, would you be able to sell would you be able to sell him a, a second edition with a signature, Steve? Would you be able to autograph one for him if he orders it? That's only seven hundred bucks. No. <laughs> I'll happily sign it, Jimmy. Yes. I you know what, Steve? I'll pitch in an extra hundred just because you're you're helping me bust my friend's balls. <laughs> so it's up to eight hundred dollars. Oh my God. Uh well, we don't want to keep you too much longer, Steve, but I mean, this is amazing. Um Holy shit. So I know, Brian, you have a question. And then and then uh, I did want to get to one quick story from the book as we talked about, Steve, because I, I think it really encapsulates the book. But I know Brian had a quick question for you here. So so quick question. And I'm sure you probably follow along and have heard some of the, the Wolfgang interviews um, about the vast collection of tapes that are sitting there in the studio and your conversations with Ed. Is there a lot of material that was never released like in full song form or are we just talking hours of riffs or do you have any idea what is sitting in 5150 and can you comment if you do know <laughs> yeah right so i mean there's the one comment ed makes uh in the book that he had 10 cds worth of music or nine cds i can tell you that i saw boxes big boxes filled with cassettes. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cassettes. Are they completed songs? I, I, I doubt it. Um, are there some amazing riffs on there? Undoubtedly. Um, I, I don't know what's in the vault. Um, I never saw the vault. Um, I mean, maybe these are, you know, rough demos of maybe, you know, Al and Ed and maybe Ed is playing bass. Is it all amazing stuff? I'm sure a lot of it's incredible. I'm sure a lot of it's just ideas and stuff. Um, will it ever see the light of day? You know, Wolf is out there doing his thing, and I, I think that's great. He's an extraordinarily talented kid, man. He uh, obviously has the Van Halen blood running through his veins. Um, you know, will will there be a point in time when he can sit back and, go through that and archive this stuff and find out what's worthwhile. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, um, but in answer to your question, Brian, I mean, I think there's some, probably some extraordinary stuff there. My, my sense is that a lot of it is just what Ed would call noodling, uh, which to say, maybe there are verses and choruses there. Um, you know, um, the basis of a song, you know, so Wolf goes back and pulls out those songs for uh, a different kind of truth. So maybe there's more, more stuff uh, at that stage of completion in there. Um, All right. You just, you just brought something up. All right. You're either going to be on team John or team Brian here, Steven. I'm going to put well, you, well, we know All where right. he's going to go here. Oh yeah. Uh oh. Steven, a different kind of truth fan or not a fan. It didn't do much for me. Damn I'm it. Sorry. You're on Team Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, I, I, need to, I need to add a caveat there. Sure. So um, that comes out, when is that? 2010, February, isn't it? No, February 2012, yeah. 
12. Okay. It was like right around my birthday. I will never forget that. I was like, holy shit, new Van Halen. Oh my God. So, okay. So it's been, it's been nine years since, uh, I last spoke to Ed. Um, the record comes out and maybe there was still some, I don't know, man, lingering resentment, something. I don't know. Maybe I didn't want it to be amazing. I know that's a selfish thing to say. Sure. Um, but, you, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's true. I, I think I really wanted to hear it and be blown away. I just, I thought it was good. Um, I just didn't think it was, uh, I, I didn't think it deserved a spot within the canon of the great Van Halen records, you know, the first six to my mind that those are my feelings some people might call it their favorite records some people might say that um yeah they were all the wrists and ed was playing amazingly i wouldn't dispute that it just didn't it just didn't resonate that loudly with me sure okay all right well there there you go brian steve steve's on yes. your side all right yeah i i just feel like it, it felt kind of my word i always use is sort of forced like okay we're trying to go back and trying to recreate and that's always dangerous ground no matter who you are and uh i i actually i i did want it to be great and um you know but there's there's plenty of people that love that album and yeah. there's plenty plenty of people that are wrong it's like john so <laughs> you, you know Brian, you bring up a good point you know it's hard to go back and try to revisit history and recreate and this is going to get me shot down for sure the new stones record <laughs> You know, which is the whole thing is now available on YouTube. And I, I, I was at the gym and I listened to it. And it's like, yeah, it's okay. But it's like there's a song that's kind of like reminiscent of Wild Horses, but it's not nearly as good as Wild Horses. And there's a song that's a little bit reminiscent of Start Me Up, but the riff isn't nearly as good as Start Me Up. It's like, yeah, I mean, look, you know, Mick and Keith, you know, they're never going to write really bad songs, but it was like. Right. It was like derivative. It was like a modern band taking what the Stones were, and uh yeah, it was just it was uncomfortable, you know. And and you know, I'm not saying that it didn't have moments, but it just, you know, put it next to Sticky Fingers, and it's like, oh my God, you know, it's like, yeah. forget it. So, you know, but that's me. So real quick, let's get another plug in for the book. If you guys want to pick up a copy of Tone Chaser. Understanding Edward, my 26-year journey with Edward Van Halen. You have to do it. Just go to ToneChaserBook.com. You can pick one up there. Uh, it only, it'll only cost you $1,000 for an autographed copy, as we just Exactly. <laughs> if your name exactly. is James Lever. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, guys, seriously, go pick this book up. Um, sorry to fanboy about it, but it is my favorite Van Halen book. It's absolutely fantastic, especially if you're a massive Van Halen honk like me. Uh, Steve, like I say, we'll, we'll keep you a couple more minutes. Thank you so much for all this time. I, I could keep sure. going for, for days talking about Eddie and this book. Um, it, God, there's so many things, so many things I want to ask. I, I want to close with a quick story from the book. Like we talked about offline, yeah. but, um, man, I mean, I'll come is, back. I'll come back anytime you want, man. That is fine with me. Let's do it. I am. I am all, all in right. with that, man. <laughs> I, oh. I could talk about this forever, man. Like so, we we do this, Steve. Real quick, not to interrupt, John. We do this series where we deep dive albums. Like we would love to get you in, maybe deep dive 
something like VH2 or Fair Warning or something like that would be because we already did 84, I think, didn't we, John? Yeah, that's the most influential record but, of my uh, life. So, but yeah, something like one of those two, man. If we could, if we could get you, get you on and go track by track, that would be amazing. Yeah. Do Do you have a favorite of the? I mean, you said that you know, like the the Holy Grail for Van Halen for you is the original six, the Dave records. Do you have a favorite of those? I tend to say fair warning, but I've been listening to um, like the first one, you know, I put the, put it on the gym, you know, and God, the second one was so good too. Uh, but I, I think fair warning, I mean, I think that's where it, it really crystallized for him. Um, uh, uh, the, the songs are way more um, orchestrated and layered and he has a chance to you know, overdub and, you know, put down 8,000 guitar tracks and, you know, had the time to do what he wanted to do. Um, and again, that, you know, when I write about that, you know, that was the record, you know, made him sick because he had, you know, worked so hard on it and that whole thing. But my God, his playing on that record. Wow. You know, incredible. It's always, it's always so interesting to me that that, that always seems to be at least, you know, at the very least, for the Dave fans, the one they go to, because to me, that record is always like, if you kind of like dig into it, it's almost like half of a record of normal stuff. Like the first side, it's like normal songs. And then you get to the second half, you're like, all right, unchain. But then you got push comes to shove and one foot out the door and Sunday afternoon in the park. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's really weird on the second half. Like, and I, I, I wonder if, if, if that's the reason why it's like, potentially the most creative van halen record that he did at least with the date with the dave lineup maybe that's what it is because it, it that always strikes me about that album is that after unchained you're like all these different weirdo things coming at you you know i mean it could be i i also thought that you know dave's vocals on there were were good look and i write about it and no offense dave and i think you you know you were <laughs> integral to van halen but I was never a big David Lee Roth fan, but I thought that his work on that record was really good, you know. Um, so maybe that was part of part of it as well. But yeah, man, it's a pretty eclectic record for sure. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing I, record. That was my first album. So I, I had gotten into the joint of the Columbia record and tape club right and i you know i was kind of big into i was sort of big into like kiss billy squire at the time i think so so you're saying fair warning cost you one twelfth of a penny so, so yeah so so i got like seven cassettes in the mail and fair warning and mean street comes on and i'm like what is that i mean i must have rewound that song 25 times going what did i just hear and then i finally got dirty movies started i'm like oh my god this because i'd obviously heard the first van halen album was this is the most craziest guitar thing I ever heard. And then I heard this and I'm like, this is just taking it to a whole new level. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. All right, Steve. So I have one last question for you. And then if you wouldn't mind closing the show with a very short story from the book, because again, as I teased earlier, I really think the story that I'd like you to tell just is such an incredible view into the, into the book itself. And I think it really helps sell it. Um, so the, the short question is, at one point in the book, you talk about having a lot of bootleg recordings of Van Halen live from way back in the day. You know, this was 
you know, the, the, it, this was during the interview, uh, you know, when Dave had quit the band, you said you'd started collecting some of them. Do you still have any of those? <laughs> <laughs> you know, oddly, I, I only have a couple. I, I, where the rest of them went, I do not know. And the ones I have are probably fairly common knowledge. Um, it was one from Pasadena City College, which I think is um, circulated around. Uh, there's one from um, them playing one of the shows in the UK the first time they went over, um, and maybe one or two others. I don't know where the other ones went. I think maybe someone maybe had sort of given, loaned them, given them to me, and then they wanted them back or something like that. Because I, for the life of me, I, I, I do not have them. So, yeah. How much gold do you think was on, like, do you think back then, go, God damn it, if I could go back, to, say, Steve, put these in a vault. Yeah, man. Yeah, there's probably some amazing stuff there. Wow. That's Don't just, remind it, it, me, John, please. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just it's it's just so amazing to me to think like just you know what I'm gonna listen to tonight? And eh, listen to some nineteen seventy-five Eddie Van Halen. What the hell? Like, you know, all these different things. Like that's just so cool, man. So uh Steve, this has been amazing. Uh I you know, we can't thank you enough, but personally I can't thank you enough. Literally, Eddie Van Halen changed my life. Um, I would not have my my friends, my family, my my wife, my band. If it wasn't for Eddie Van Halen and this this book to me just hit me like nothing else has. And I just think it's a fantastic read. And to be able to talk to you about it in depth is just such a thrill. It's it's crazy. So thank you so much for the time. Uh, I want you to close with a quick story as we talked about. And when we're done, if you could hang out just for a quick second after we go off air, I just want to talk to you for a quick second and then, you know, p- politely say goodbye. So just like, all right, see you later. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. but uh Again, guys, before before Steve gets into the story, which I just think is amazing. I read this and was like, holy shit, this book rules. And it's just a very short story. But um, the book is called Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. You can get it at ToneChaserBook.com. You can get it on Amazon, I believe, Steve. It's available at a number of retailers. Amazon, so, Reverb, eBay, and Etsy. If anybody and, goes to Etsy. I, I, I got this uh, reprint from the OU812 tour off of Etsy. Did you really? <laughs> oh yeah, my, my my wife is incredibly creative. She's a she's a uh, she's a Head Start teacher, and she just is artistic oh, as wow. all hell. And she knows my love of Van Halen. So uh, my Christmas present two years ago was she found identical tour reprints from the 5150 tour, the OU812 tour, and the For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge tour. And I just holy shit, man! She so this is. You know, yeah, my, my wife kind of rules. She's a rock girl herself, so she understands. That's so, great, man. Uh, but yeah, so all right, Steve, again, thank you so much, guys. He is Steven Rosen. You can find him anywhere. Just look up guitar writing and he's there. He's he's fucking Steve Rosen, dude. So check out Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, my 26 year journey with Edward Van Halen. Steve, close us out with this amazing story. I, I just love this story. It's It's just... So you 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 had to go with Eddie Van Halen to go buy guitar strings at Guitar Center. So take it away. Right. And who who could believe that? Least of all me. <laughs> right. Right. So the, the, the chapter 
And I thought this was clever. It's called No Strings Attached, right? <laughs> nice. I thought, how clever is that? So I'm up at 5150, and it's just some afternoon. And Edward is uh, taking the strings off a guitar. And, um, you know, he's surrounded by other guitars, and they all have strings, but he's taking the strings off this guitar. And he gets done taking them off, and he goes over to the cabinet where he obviously must have kept the other guitar strings. And he's searching around, and he's looking around, and he can't find them there. And he goes into another cabinet, and he can't find them there. And he looks at me, and he, and he says, I, I, I don't have any guitar strings. And I think this must be a joke, right? This is like <laughs> candid camera to see what my reaction is. So um, how can you not have a set of guitar strings? And, you know, we're in 5150, and there's like $8 billion worth of gear. And there's every microphone and outboard effect and the board and the guitars. And it's like, how do you not have a set of guitar strings? And I thought it was unbelievable. And what happens next is even more unbelievable. And he says, well, you know, I, I, got, I need a set of guitar strings, you know. So I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, let's go get a set of guitar strings. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> we go outside. And we jump into his Countach, which I can barely maneuver myself into. And we go driving down to the Guitar Center on Ventura Boulevard to buy guitar strings. Eddie Van Halen does not have a set of guitar strings. And that is unbelievable. And what is more unbelievable is that he is going to go get the guitar strings himself. As if he couldn't have called one of his guys, whether they were you know, on the clock or not, guys, I need some strings. Go bring me a dozen set of strings. He was not going to do that. He was going to go get the guitar strings himself. So we're driving there, you know, and I'm driving in the Countach with Edward Van Halen down Ventura Boulevard. And this is just an unbelievable experience. And yes, he was driving fucking fast. And it was fucking cool. And we're driving, you know, and it's only like, you know, I don't know, eight miles away. And he gets there in about three minutes, you know. I go screeching into the parking lot. And we get out. and We walk in the front door. And um, there's a couple other people there. And there's a guy behind the counter. And we start walking over. And I watch this guy behind the counter. And he recognizes who this is. Honestly, man, I thought he was going to collapse. I thought he was going to fall over or stroke out. And we walk up, you know, and, and he's looking at Ed. And his mouth is agog, you know, and he, he's looking at Ed. And Ed says, yeah, man, I, I need a set of strings. And this guy's saying, yeah, yeah, you know. The, the guy, Ed says, I think he said, you know, I need a set of fenders. And so he goes off and, <laughs> and gets the set of strings, you know, and brings them back. And the whole time this guy is just looking at him. And it, you know, he's incredulous. This cannot be Edward Van Halen standing in front of him and I don't know if he if the guy ever saw the irony of Edward Van Halen being in a guitar center buying a set of guitar strings the sure. one thing is if it was in there buying a another keyboard or another guitar or an amp or some pedals but a set of guitar strings you know um, and I'm watching this guy and this guy is trying to maintain his cool and he asked Edward for a signature an autograph and Ed, Ed gave that to him and um you know, Edward, you know, goes and, and pulls out his uh, wallet and, you know, he's looking through it, you know, and he, he goes to me, he goes, do you have any money? 
I go, yeah, he goes, man, could you buy the guitar strings? So not only these three elements tell you everything there is to know about him. So not only did he not have a set of guitar strings in the most expensive studio that probably existed for 2,000 miles, he goes to get to get the strings himself, and then he doesn't have $10 to buy the guitar strings. That, that just tells you that, you know, he never, obviously he didn't think of himself as Edward Van Halen, the legend. He, he needed a set of guitar strings. And how do I get a set of guitar strings as quickly as possible? You go and you buy them, right? And I don't have any money, so I'm going to ask my friend Steve if I can borrow 10 bucks. So I give him 10 bucks, and he doesn't borrow 20 bucks. He doesn't buy two sets. He buys one set of guitar strings. <laughs> I mean, my God, that tells you everything. Like, he didn't want to, you know, impose by, by borrowing 20 bucks from me, you know? I, I mean, it was so perfect. So then we go, you know, and we stop at a liquor store, and I knew he didn't have any money. He says, hey, man, I brought some money for a beer. He goes, yeah, man, whatever you need, you know? So I put it on the credit card. And so Edward Van Halen driving in his $150,000 Countach from his $2 million whatever studio cost in his $8 million home borrows 20 bucks from me for beer and 10 bucks for guitar strings. I mean, it was perfect. You know, we go back and, you know, he's putting the strings on and, you know, I'm looking at him and, you know, maybe I'd asked him or he said, you know, well, you know, it's got to be this guitar. Like he didn't have another 50 guitars identical to that, but it had to be that guitar that he was playing, you know, to, to, to work out these ideas he had, you know. And I could sense when he was, um, I could, I, I knew when Ed was getting into, you know, music mode and songwriting mode. And, you know, I, I could tell that, you know, our, our day was over, you know. So I said, hey, man, I'll see you later, you know. So I go back outside and jump my car and, and drive home. And, um, yeah, man, those those things just say so much about the guy, you know, humility, going to buy your own guitar strings at Guitar Center. I don't see Jimmy Page doing that anytime soon. <laughs> right. or Richie Blackmore, or Pete Townsend or Robin Trower or anybody I can think of, anybody you could name. They just they just didn't do it, which goes back to your point, John, of, 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 of how you feel so connected with Edward Van Halen. You know, yeah, man, you, you might walk into Guitar Center and it would be there buying guitar strings. And no, he never paid me back. And Ed, you owe me, you owe me thirty bucks, buddy. Yeah, that was that was an amazing day. I I love that day, man. That is, dude. What what a way to close out the interview, man. That is that's exactly what I wanted you to tell that because it is like you say, one hundred fifty thousand dollar car, two million dollar studio, eight million dollar house. Hey, man, let's go to Guitar Center. I need to buy strings. Can you loan me ten bucks? And now, now let's go to the gas station and snag 20 bucks worth of beer. <laughs> like, that's, that is, um, that's, that's exactly what you get out of the book, man. That's why I love it so much. Like, I just think that story tells the tale of tone chaser so well, you know, it's your guy's friendship and you know, the, you know, just who he was. And just, again, humility, we've said it so many times, humility. Yeah, man. Man. I, I really well, appreciate that. Now, yeah, anytime. Man. Yeah, man, and and he, uh, yeah, the fact that, yeah, on the other side that 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 he felt that we were friends enough that he could ask to borrow ten bucks, right? Because even good friends yep. are like, oh, I don't want to borrow money from you, you know. 
he never offered to pay back and I would never ask, you know, so that was a part of the friendship too, you know, I mean, like I was going to ask him, like I really cared. I mean, I, Christ, he could have bought, you know, I would have given him anything he wanted, you know, Ed, you want an amp, you know, what do you want today? Ed? You know, so yeah, yep. it says everything about the guy, you know, it, it just, it just speaks to the reality of the relationship exactly. you guys you guys had it you know it wasn't oh you know you're trying to get interviews off him and or he's leeching off you because he needs some guy just to spill his guts to like no nah, man you guys are actual buds like hey bro I, I don't got any money like got 20 bucks for beer fuck yeah dude here you go you know <laughs> like you, it's the honor system you know you'll get it back some way later you know so. that's exactly right and he never offered me a beer either <laughs> what he drank yeah. all right all right start the interview over Let's talk yeah. about Eddie Van Halen being a selfish beer drinker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. All right, yeah. Steve. Well, if you can hold out in the green room just for a second, we're going to close up the show. Um, yeah. Again, Steve, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Uh, guys, again, the book is Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. Pick up your copy at ToneChaserBook.com. Steve, I'll talk to you in just a second, but again, Thank you so very much. This has just been such a thrill for me to have you on. And thank you so much for the time you've given us, man. Appreciate it. Uh, it was great, guys. I really appreciate you having me. And uh, very excellent conversation. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you in just a second, man. Yep. Well, Brian, uh, Steve, Steve is very lucky that, that I, I have some couth because otherwise I'd been talking to him till next Thursday. Uh <laughs> You know me, I can never get enough uh, Van Halen talking. And boy, that was holy shit. That was fucking awesome. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's wow. still it's still surreal. Like, you know, I post the question to him. Do you sit back and reflect later? And then at the same time, we're talking and I'm going, this is like, you know, to be this close to someone who was that close to someone else. Like, it, I don't yeah. think it's going to sink in for a while. Like, I, I mean, it's 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 just I, there's just very few people that will impact a, a generation, you know, in any shape or form, you know, uh, be it, I don't know, politically, socially, economically, scientifically, you know, entertainment wise. It's just there just are not that many, you know, the odds are just stacked against it. It's just it's a very, 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 very small percentage. And for Steve Ed was to, one of them. Yeah. And Ed was one yep. of them. And Steve was like he was there. And, you know, maybe right place, right time. But, but you know, he was an incredible friend to, to Eddie also. You know, it was, it was a very 50-50 um, kind of a relationship, you know. Yep. And uh, it's just very cool to hear the story, man. And I, I think that's the other thing is that it's not just, you know, hey, here's some stories about Ed and we we're like it was so reciprocal. You know, it just it just goes beyond what you would want want to read as a fan again and I, I come i come at this strictly as a guy who just eats sleeps and breathes van halen you know i've got you know if i look up right here on my wall i've got pictures of them from the 1984 tour i've got the you know a 45 of the panama single i've got you know the reprints of van halen and, and women and children first you know um you know the pictures that i have from the fair warning tour there was a very good buddy of mine out in youngstown who lost his brother and his brother was an enormous van halen fan and took those pictures in 1981 front row and had him framed on his wall and when his brother passed he said he he mailed me those pictures i hadn't talked to him in a couple years and i don't know where he says what's your address and i gave it to him and 
I get that in the mail. He knew I was that big of a Van Halen fan, and, and he knew that that's how much it would mean. He said, and I, I actually have the card that he wrote with it, with those pictures as well. And he's like, I wanted these to go to someone who would appreciate them. And I know that you, of all people, you were the person I knew that would appreciate these the most. And it's, you know, so Van Halen's personal to me and obviously personal to Steve. And it's just the book is absolutely fantastic. It's not just a musician biography. It's not just, you know, here's my my personal stories like it's very heartfelt and it's way more than I could have ever expected to have read. So so many thanks to Steve. Uh, real quick, my buddy Jimmy chiming in one last time. Jimmy, thanks for tuning in, man. It, dude, I'm glad you had a great time, Jimmy, because I know you and I are going to get together and just nerd out over this. But uh, it says, thank you, Steve, for the amazing stories. What a great interview. Looking forward to the autographed book. Well, uh, uh, Jimmy, Steve's looking forward to your $1,000. So, <laughs> so um, you, know, you know, though, it just, it just highlights, I mean, you know, we get older and we get more sentimental, but a, a, a true friend is really, you know, it's a, it's an unpaid therapist, you know? I mean, Eddie was able to, you know, to really be vulnerable with Steve, and Steve was, was able to also voice his insecurities, and, and, you know, they had each other's back, you know, when when they could. Dude, and I, I can't say anything any better than that. That is, that's such a great encapsulation of this book, so... All right, guys, we're going to close up shop from here. Uh, again, one last time, go pick up your copy of Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen by Stephen Rosen. You can get it at ToneChaserBook.com. Guys, again, I can't recommend it enough, so go pick that up. Uh, we will be right back here in two weeks on Thursday, November 16th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And once again, guys, don't forget that on Friday, it is not a Thursday, Friday, December 22nd, it is going to be our annual fan hangout. If you would like to jump on camera and co-host the show with Brian and I, send us an email. It's talkingintoinfinity at gmail.com, and you are more than welcome to come on, jump on camera. We talk about anything that night. It is a free-form discussion of just us and our friends and viewers and listeners just nerding out on whatever topics you want, preferably music. In fact, you know, we keep it to music, but whatever. If you want to talk Star Wars, I'm open. Fuck you, Brian. Anyway, so we'll see you guys in two weeks on Thursday, November 16th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, thank you to Stephen Rosen for coming on with us. That is amazing. Uh, we're going to talk to him about coming on again sometime in the future because I think he's open to it, and I would love to do it. So see you in two weeks. And as always, guys, carpe diem.